Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of Archive Sleuth the podcast in which I, Georgina Asfau, ferret around in the archives to unearth stories of the extraordinary in ordinary past lives. I was compelled to dig into today's archive story by a question. A question that has been nagging away at me for well over a decade. Many years ago, I worked as a tour guide at Oxford Castle. The castle, first built in the 1060s, served as a jail for most of its thousand-year history. One special evening, I was presented with a fern-green 18th-century-style gown and white cap, and sent to sit in one of the prison's original, cold, forbidding cells. My job, for the benefit of the visitors, was to act the part of real-life prisoner Mary Blandy. Mary was imprisoned in Oxford Castle in 1751, while she awaited trial. The charge? Murdering her own father. The evidence was stacked heavily against her, not least because Mary herself admitted to killing him. But that is not the same as pleading guilty. In fact, Mary steadfastly pleaded not guilty. She claimed she was deceived into performing the actions that led to her father's death, and that she herself never intended to harm him. As I stood that evening, loudly protesting my innocence from a prison cell much like Mary would have lived in, the question kept circling in my mind. Was she telling the truth? Had Mary been duped? Or was this the last throw of the die by a calculating killer? Well, I'll let you decide. This is the story of Mary Blandy and the patricidal poisoning. Thanks to the notoriety of the Blandy case, there are a lot of archive sources to dig one's teeth into. The newspapers quickly got wind of the horror of a daughter potentially murdering her own father, and the case, as it unfolded, became front-page news in papers up and down the country, with the coroner's inquest and trial proceedings reported verbatim as far away as Aberdeen. Numerous pamphlets were also rushed out to the enthralled masses, some again providing transcripts of the trial proceedings, 
others defending or attacking Mary. It is therefore possible to follow the story step by step in remarkable detail. Let us start, though, as is always best, at the beginning. Mary was born in 1720 in Henley, a small town on the Thames in Oxfordshire. She grew up in relative prosperity as the only child of Francis Blandy, a successful and locally respected attorney, and his wife. They seem, by all accounts, to have been an affectionate family, the doting parents giving their only child every advantage that their comfortable station in life allowed them. Mary was educated at home as a gentlewoman, instilled with the principles of religion and piety, and was known to be agreeable, genteel, a good conversationalist, and polite. In the 18th century, to call someone polite didn't just mean they were well-mannered and minded their P's and Q's, instead it referred to the desirable level of attainment in a person's entire behaviour and presentation. To be polite, one had to speak, dress, move and behave appropriately. A polite person was a sociable, civil and educated member of genteel society. It was what every gentlewoman and gentleman should be. Young Mary was not rated a beauty, but she is described as having an agreeable face. Added to that, she had all the accomplishments of a modern young gentlewoman, and a successful, moneyed, propertied father. She therefore held, and not unreasonably, expectations of being a bit of a catch on the marriage market. Yet the years ticked by, and as Mary matured from a promising teenager to a woman in her mid-twenties, the right man still didn't cross her path. For Mary, who was a deeply romantic person, the long wait to fall in love must have been a source of deepening personal sadness and anxiety. Very few people want to grow old alone, but for Mary, the prospect of never getting married meant more than missing out on the joy of love and companionship. With no siblings, and so no nephews and nieces, she would have been acutely aware that she would be very isolated once her parents died. And with no husband to support her, she would depend on her inheritance from her father to sustain her for the rest of her life. Mary would be damned to becoming a poorer and poorer lonely spinster the longer she lived. To heat the pressure cooker up further, in the 1700s, the generally accepted window for getting hitched was considerably shorter than it is now. I didn't get married until my thirties, and to any 18th century time traveller, I would have been considered positively decrepit as I shuffled down the aisle. As for Mary, when she hit the grand old age of 26, she became something of a desperate case for her parents. Still unmarried and still not engaged, she was now at serious risk of being shelved as an ageing spinster. Her father Francis wanted nothing more than to see his daughter secure and happy. And desperate times call for desperate measures. So he launched a questionable scheme. He deliberately spread the rumour that Mary would receive a fortune of £10,000 upon her marriage. Any devotee of Pride and Prejudice's Mr Darcy will know that £10,000 was an absolute fortune at that time. To translate it into modern currency, £10,000 would be around £1.1 million today, or $1.5 million for our American cousins. This was a risky move by Francis. Money was a key consideration in the aptly named marriage market. 
potential suitors were looking for a spouse who could, at the very least, match their income, if not raise their standard of living or help resolve their particular financial quandaries. After all, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man not in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a really rich wife. It would not have been enough to simply claim his daughter would bring £10,000 into a marriage deal. The ensnared suitor would eventually expect Francis to cough up the money. Perhaps Francis, blinded by his love for his daughter, was banking on the hearsay of his fortune to raise the profile of his family just enough to bring Mary to the attention of a good, worthy man, who would fall in love with her and care not a jot when her true dowry was confessed. But in reality, he was exposing his daughter to the risk of falling for a man only for their engagement or marriage to abruptly crumble once her true worth was revealed. Worse even than that, he was exposing his daughter to the attentions of unscrupulous fortune hunters. Enter stage right, William Henry Cranston. Captain Cranston was a Scot, the younger son of a lord. Like many younger sons of nobility, he was an army officer, a man born to fortune, but granted only a meagre allowance, and required to carve out his own money and place in the world. Now in his mid-forties, Cranston was a worldly wise man, with a keen interest in two things – women and money. In 1746, Captain Cranston was given command of a recruiting party and ordered to tour Oxfordshire to find willing men to replenish his regiment's ranks. Cranston's recruiting tour took him to Henley. There he happened to have family. His uncle, Lord Mark Kerr, had recently settled in the town. On visiting his uncle, Cranston met the Blandies and learned of Mary's fortune of £10,000. He promptly fell in love with her. Mr. Cranston was by all accounts a rather unattractive-looking soul, but, as Mrs. Bennet would surely assert, every girl does love a redcoat. Certainly this girl seems to have loved a redcoat, as ungenerous rumours later circulated that Mary was a renowned flirt who had been particularly fond of taking secretive evening walks in the meadows around Henley with military gentlemen. Yet Cranston did not have to rely on a dashing uniform alone. He was a very personable, charming man, highly experienced in the arts of flattery and courtship. Mary was quickly swept off her feet. Love, it seems, had arrived at last. Cranston proposed, and Mary was eager to accept. Luckily, Mary's mother and father liked their daughter's charming suitor, not least because of his much-touted noble pedigree, so matrimony finally seemed to be on the cards. There was, however, just one small fly in the love ointment. Cranston was already married. He had a wife and child back in Scotland. Cranston, though, was not the sort of fellow to allow laws or responsibilities to constrict the motions of his heart. When the Blandies were told by Lord Mark Kerr that his wayward nephew already had a wife and child, Cranston had an explanation ready at hand. He was, he assured them, not actually properly married. The woman in question, who he called Miss Murray, was falsely claiming to be his wife, under a peculiarity of Scottish law by which cohabiting couples were automatically regarded as married. Although Cranston admitted he had lived with Miss Murray and fathered her child, 
he swore he had never undergone a marriage ceremony. To fall in love after all those years of waiting for Mr. Wright, only to find that Mr. Wright may not be available, must have been devastating. But love is powerful, and Mary's faith in love was unwavering. The bombshell of Cranston's potential wife and very real child did not cool her ardour for her new beau. Mary's willingness to believe Cranston one can understand. More inexplicable, though, is the fact that the news did not convince her parents of the need to forbid their daughter's relationship with this man of uncertain marital status and dubious morals. Instead, the marriage of Mary and Cranston was simply put on hold indefinitely until Cranston could resolve the situation with Miss Murray. He claimed he was working through the Scottish courts to prove the marriage was invalid. In the meantime, Mary and Cranston kept up a prolific, and I can only assume passionate, correspondence. They wrote to each other by almost every post whenever they were apart, and spent long spells in each other's company. Cranston came to Henley several times over the following years, staying for months on end in the Blandys' home. His last visit was made between the August and December of 1750. We are now already four years into their relationship, but Cranston had still not cleared up his marital status. Quite the opposite. By this time, Miss Murray, a.k.a. Mrs. Cranston, as we really should call her, had heard that her absent husband was busy wooing an attorney's daughter in Henley. To put a stop to this, she sent Mary legal proof of her marriage to Cranston, a decree of the Court of Scotland in her favour. On top of this, during the 1750 visit, Cranston confessed to Mary that he had fathered a second child by another woman the year before he met Mary, a child very close in age to his child by his wife. And as if that weren't enough, Mary discovered that Cranston, throughout his courtship of Mary, had been, and in fact still was, keeping a mistress. Now, far be it from me to presume what you, dear listeners, would do in this situation. Our Mary, after all these emotional punches and betrayals, decided to stand by her man. She was still deeply in love, and still determined to marry him. There could of course be more to the story. Maybe, for all her gentlewoman's education, she was as much gullible as she was in love. Or maybe, Mary was being sinisterly controlled and manipulated by Cranston. Whatever the truth, she wasn't the only one to give Cranston the benefit of the doubt. Mary's mother had been excessively fond of Cranston, so much so that she took his word on trust when he swore he was not already married. She lived long enough to see and dismiss the letter from Miss Murray, and then died in 1749, on her deathbed still fervently hoping Mary would soon be married to Cranston. Her widower Francis had always been less convinced of the match, and during the autumn of 1750 he was becoming increasingly irritated by Cranston's prolonged presence in his house. According to the household servants, Francis was often bad-tempered when Cranston was around, and got annoyed when he found Mary in his company. It's hardly surprising that he should be frustrated and concerned by how long it was taking Cranston to prove himself to be a free man. His daughter's future and reputation were on the line as long as the uncertainty continued, so I think we can forgive him some moodiness. And yet, he still allowed this man to stay under his roof 
and keep frequent private company with his daughter. This, to me, is baffling. Perhaps he was an unusually liberal-minded father, and, as a 21st century woman, I am all on the side of daughters being free to make their own life choices. I would be very resentful, angry and deaf to a parent who tried to tell me who I could and could not love and marry. But even so, even today, I would strongly advise any friend of mine to be wary of trusting a person with Cranston's track record of abandonment and infidelity. And Mary was not a 21st century woman. She lived at a time when a woman's reputation was as fragile as a china teacup. Her relationship with Cranston, whose marital status was common gossip, risked her reputation, any future marriage prospects, and her position in society. It could ruin her. So why did Francis allow the relationship to continue? His decision may have come from a good place, his love for his daughter, and his guiding desire to see her happy. But be that as it may, his indulgence of Mary in this matter was the action of a weak parent. And it was not only Mary who was being put at risk by his behaviour. In caving in to his daughter, Francis Blandy was digging his own grave. During Cranston's final visit to Henley, between August and December 1750, it wasn't just Francis who was becoming frustrated. The lover's patience was also running out. Francis may have been allowing the couple to see each other, but that wasn't enough. Until and unless Cranston could prove he was a bachelor, which by now seemed a bit of a dwindling prospect, Francis would continue to stand in the way of Mary finally marrying the man she loved, and of Cranston getting his hands on that £10,000. Francis had to be taken out of the picture. They were a clever pair, though, and they realised that if they were to get away with murder and the money, it was crucial that Francis's death should appear natural and unsuspicious. So Mary and Cranston planted some seeds, little foretellings of doom, which would lead, they hoped, to the news of Francis dying in the near future, being not simply unsurprising to those who knew him, but almost anticipated. The couple spoke several times in front of guests and the servants of hearing music in the house when there was nobody playing. Imagine how eerie that would be to suddenly hear a tinkling melody in an age before radios, CDs and streaming, to hear music when there was no earthly reason why there should be music. Spookier still, Mary claimed to have heard the ghostly tread of footsteps, which she said was the sound of her dead mother roaming the corridors. Both of these noises, they said darkly to just about anyone who would listen, from the maid Betty Binfield to the apothecary Mr Norton, were sure foretellings that a death would occur in the house within the twelve month. The premonitions honed in on Francis after Cranston amazed the household one morning by claiming to have been startled at 2am by an apparition of Francis appearing to him in his bedchamber. For a person's ghost to appear while the person was still alive must be an unmistakable sign of imminent death. Or, at the very least, the mark of a future ghost very impatient to get on with haunting his irksome acquaintances. 
After having, he hoped, raised expectations that poor old Francis's days were numbered, Cranston bid the Blandys adieu and headed home to Scotland. The frequent letter-writing between the couple continued over the following months. Only now, as well as letters, Cranston sent Mary presents of Scottish pebbles. Not perhaps the most romantic of gifts for a man to send his fiancée, unless of course Mary had a secret passion for geology, but the pebbles were just a cover. For alongside the pebbles, Cranston sent a white powder, which he labelled as a powder to clean the pebbles. You might be thinking, well, he could have had the decency to clean the blasted pebbles himself. But this label too was just a misdirect, as Mary well knew. For instead of spending her time scrubbing away at her stones, Mary surreptitiously poured the white powder into her father's cups of tea. She had crossed the Rubicon. Over the first half of 1751, Francis Blandy became ever more unwell. His teeth started falling out. He complained of stomach pains. He often vomited, particularly often in the days after Mary received a new present of pebbles. And Francis wasn't the only one to fall foul of Mary's special brew. In June, the family's washerwoman, Anne Emmett, came upon a cup of tea which Francis had only half finished. Washing clothing, bedding and all household linens in an age before machines was a long, back-breaking slog that included immersing washing in boiling vats, scrubbing away for hours, followed by drying and ironing. Thirsty work. No washerwoman worth her salt would let a spare cup of tea go to waste. So, naturally, Anne downed the cup and finished off what was left in the teapot. She was soon vomiting uncontrollably. Poor Anne Emmett was ill for six weeks. She was lucky to survive. Shortly after her misadventure, one of the maids, Susanna Gunnell, also finished off some leftover tea and was taken ill for three weeks. The revelation at her later trial, that Mary had been stirring a poison into tea, must have sent shockwaves through genteel society. There was a huge boom in tea drinking during the 18th century. Tea was one of the new luxury commodities, establishing itself as an essential to the British way of life. Drinking tea was a civilising process, an accessory to polite conversation and sociability, and preparing and serving tea to one's family and guests was, of course, the woman's role. The delicate china teacups passed around by the wife, daughter or sister. But Mary Blandy had turned the civilised feminine teacup into a vessel of death. She had, superficially, played the part society expected of her, but exploited the tea ritual for an evil purpose. Almost as shocking would have been the claims by several of the Blandy's employees, the maids Betty Binfield and Susanna Gunnell, and Francis's clerk, Mr Littleton, that Mary fell far short of being a polite and discreet young lady when talking about her father during these months. Apparently relishing her father's deteriorating health, she was heard damning her father for a toothless old rogue and wishing him to hell. She was allegedly particularly potty-mouthed if she was under a passion and felt ill-used by her father vis-à-vis -vis her intended marriage. At such times, she would curse and insult her father, calling him, as the fancy took her, a rogue, an old villain, or a toothless old dog. While she was overheard in repentant moods, wishing her father a long life, she was more often heard fervently wishing for his death. Betty went so far as to allege that Mary once asked her 
who would grudge to send an old father to hell for £10,000? She clearly hadn't quite got the hang of a rhetorical question. By these accounts, 31-year-old Mary's behaviour reads rather like that of a petulant teenager, who lashes out when she doesn't get her way, and refuses to see the reasonableness and care behind a parent's apparent obstructive behaviour. After all, let's not forget, Francis Blandy's only objection to his daughter marrying Cranston was that Cranston first needed to prove he was not already married. Not exactly an outrageous requirement, but Mary was clearly outraged. Once again, this story reminds me of Pride and Prejudice. I can picture Mary as an older Lydia Bennet, a Lydia who did not elope with Mr Wickham from Brighton, but instead grew at Longbourn into an old spinster, and who was now ready to throw her lot in with any passing redcoat, provided he gave her a ticket to freedom and the longed-for appellation of Mrs. In this analogy, the overindulgent and short-sighted Francis Blandy is quite reminiscent of Mr. Bennet. While Mr. Bennet allowed his youngest daughter to run wild in a camp full of soldiers at Brighton, rather than listen to her bang doors and moan about the house, Francis allowed his daughter's married fiancé to stay under his roof rather than suffer the pain, whether more to himself or her, of Mary's displeasure. Mr. Bennet paid for taking the easy path with scandal and the near ruin by association of his other daughters. Mr. Blandy paid with his life. Not quite yet, though. The tea trick hadn't worked. Perhaps Francis's rather wasteful habit of never finishing a cup of tea had so far prolonged his increasingly painful existence. But after Anne and Susanna were accidentally poisoned, Mary began to worry. How much longer could she keep this up before she was discovered? Fearing detection with each passing day, Mary decided to stop stirring the poison into her father's tea. Much more drastic measures were called for. Mary needed to act fast if she was to ever kill her father, but live herself. Thank you for listening to this episode of Archive Sleuth. The story of Mary Blandy will continue with episode two. Please do subscribe to Archive Sleuth wherever you get your podcasts, so that you don't miss the next chapter of this tale. In the meantime, if you enjoyed listening, be sure to spread the words to your friends and family. Archive Sleuth was written, narrated and produced by me, Georgina Asfau. The music you heard was Waltz of Treachery by Kevin MacLeod, Our Story Begins by Kevin MacLeod, Sneaky Snitch by Kevin MacLeod, Ominous by Kevin MacLeod, and Sonatina in C Minor by Kevin MacLeod. The online archive resources Internet Archive, the British Newspaper Archive, and the Welcome Collection were used in the research of this episode. Full details of sources used can be found in the show notes. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 